Good morning. morning. Greetings in Christ's name. I'd like to especially welcome those of you who are visiting. Good to have you here. Good to see you again. Appreciated the opening, Mel. That was was a blessing to hear what you had to say. I think that when I think of Paul and the end of his life and the confidence with which he looked forward to his own death, it's a challenge to me because, you know, death in the Roman Empire, like everywhere else, was meant to terrify. Paul was sentenced to beheading, and that was supposed to scare him. But how do you scare a Christian with eternal life? And so Paul was unafraid, and he just kept saying, I'm moving on. I'm going forward. I'm not looking back. I'm moving on toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And thanks, Mel, for sharing that. I also appreciated what you shared about the blood of Christ, that little speck that washed us white as snow. Appreciate that. This morning, I want to talk about blood a little bit, too. Uh, I want to speak about the community of the church and how that Christ, through his blood, has brought us together as God's people. Now, back in the beginning, we all, we all know the story. I'm sure all the children here know the story well of the Tower of Babel and how that man raised a unified uh, effort against God. And they said, you know, God brought a flood on the earth. We're going to make sure that we deal with that in the future. And I don't believe, some, some people believe that the, the tower was there to get everyone, get the world's population up above the waters of the flood, but I don't think that was the case. I think this was a monument probably to the god Marduk, who was supposed to be greater than the god of heaven. And this god is going to raise a great monument to him, and he would protect them from the flood. And when we look in Genesis chapter 11, verses 8 and 9, God did something about this. And it's interesting, when you look at earlier in that chapter, it says that God came down to look at their tower. It's almost like it was so puny, he had to get down here to look at it, to see whether it was really there. And so it says, the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confuse the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. And we know how he did this. He changed their languages. Can you imagine that? I wonder how that worked. All of a sudden, they were speaking different languages, and it probably wasn't English and German and French as we know it today. If we look back at the history of language, language does evolve. It changes over time. And when you look back in history far enough, there were other major languages that gave rise to these language groups that we have today. But nevertheless, they were different languages. And all of a sudden, a man was asking for a hammer, perhaps, and he was given a shovel, or whatever the case may be. And I I wonder what kind of fights erupted at that building site. People yelling at each other and and calling each other names, but the other person didn't even know he was being called names because he didn't understand the language. And finally, they just walked off in disgust. But God did more than move them off the building site. He created national divisions and ethnic divisions and eventually racial divisions. He allowed that to happen. Now, that's not what God wanted in the beginning, but it's what he had to do because at that time, the united effort of man was to defy God. 
And so God divided them. And sin, in short, sin divided humanity. And it, it still does. Sin divides humanity. And it always will. And that Jesus, our Savior, wants to bring us together by dealing with sin. It's the only way that we can... Now, you know, there, there have been, and according to Scripture, I believe there will be again in the future an attempt to unite humanity against God. The Bible speaks about the son of perdition. It sort of implies that there will be a, perhaps an individual or an organization that will attempt to unite all humanity once again in defiance of God. We see that today, even, in some of the things, some of the efforts that humans make. But there's only one way truly unite humanity, and that's through Jesus Christ. Because without dealing with the sin that is in our hearts, we cannot bring all of humanity together. There's a number of scriptures I want to go through that talk about that a little bit, how that Jesus Christ brings people together out of every background. If you look in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter talks about this. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now, a, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So he, he talks about, he calls them a peculiar people. And the way that the, the English language has changed a little bit since this was written in the King James Version, if I, if I called uh, Brenda, if I said, you're peculiar, you would probably take that as kind of an offensive thing, like you're a little different, you know, a little special, a little, a little odd. But in, at the time this was written, it meant a special people, special to God. He called us out to be a special people. And he says, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. That is special. That's really special. Back a number of years ago, uh, the church we were in at the time, we did jail ministry at the Allen County Jail. And there were, it was back in the, uh, in the uh, 70s and 80s, uh, and there were some racial things going on in Fort Wayne at the time, some racial divisions. There was a, there was a group of uh, black men, especially one family, who had attacked some people because they were white and it inflamed some racial tensions in Fort Wayne, and there were just some things going on. And we were in the jail, and there were black men there, and there were white men there. And they would come together for a Sunday service. And the thing that just blessed me is that there was no division between those brothers. They were one in Christ. They didn't care what color the other person's skin was. They didn't care what his nationality was. They just cared that he was a brother in Jesus Christ. That's because Christ brings men together. In Revelation, God makes a big deal about this. He makes a big deal about the fact that the people who are in heaven come from everywhere. If you look in Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 to 10, he says, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book 
and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God that by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Beautiful, isn't it? If you read prior to this, it talks about the fact that John wept because no one was worthy to open the book, but then Jesus was worthy. He was the one who opened the book and he was the one who shed his blood and he was the one who united us. If you look, I think it's in chapter seven, when you look a little further, it talks about a great multitude. And again, it says, out of every nation and tribe and kindred and tongue. It literally means out of every nation and tribe and family and language, there were those people who were redeemed by the blood of Christ. Sometimes I think we misunderstand a little bit what Jesus said that straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads into life eternal. And we get the impression that there's just going to be this little handful of people in heaven, just a few, just a little tiny handful. In fact, I had someone who once told me that you know, at the coming of Christ, there'll be so few Christians that there'll be just a tiny handful. Well, maybe so, but on the other hand, in, in uh, Matthew 24, it says that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all nations, and then shall the end come. And I said, if there's just a tiny little group of people, who's going to be doing all this preaching to all nations? I think there's more people out there than you think who have come to Jesus Christ. And in heaven... There are going to be millions of people. There have to, it would have to be to be there from every nation and tribe and kindred and tongue. And we know that they weren't just aborted babies who went to heaven because it goes on to say that they were, their robes were made white by the blood of the Lamb. That's a beautiful thing that God unites humanity through the blood of Christ. As Mel said this morning, that cleansing blood and that's understandable because, you know, by myself, I have the tendency to be very selfish. I think we all do as humans. We look out for ourselves by nature. Put a couple of babies, put a couple of little children together and give them one piece of candy and you'll soon see the truth of that. But Jesus breaks down that selfishness in the sense that he makes us part of a larger body that is greater than any of us. And as a result, he can bring us together. Christians seek out the company of other Christians. You just naturally do that because Jesus brings us together. Have you ever been in a situation, I'm sure you have, where you meet somebody, maybe a, a total stranger, maybe from a different country, maybe a different continent, and you're both Christians and there's an instant connection. There's just this thing that transcends language and culture and, and national barriers because you both know Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11, But now you also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. So there again, just a, just a picture of how we are united. 
in Christ. And then one last scripture in regard to that. Jesus, in Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35, talked about this. It says, There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about all them which were, were which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my mother or my brother and my sister and mother. I don't think he was rejecting his family by saying that. Sounds kind of like it here, but if you think about it, I don't think that's what he was doing. He was saying that those who embrace my word, those who are saved by my blood become my family. Yesterday we had a we had a family reunion um, on my wife's side. Uh, it was actually a a group of people that came from the Beller family, which was a family in Canada, and there were people there from a couple of branches of the Beller family, I guess, or a couple of the descendants of the Beller family. And we talked about this a little bit about the fact that what makes a family? What's common blood, right? And you have the same DNA. You share the same kind of DNA. It's, it's the blood flowing through your veins. You ever hear somebody say, well, that's the Graver blood or, or that's the Jones blood or whatever. You know, sometimes we say things like that because we see common traits. And one of the, one of the interesting things that, um, that we talked about a little bit was that one of my wife's cousins was adopted. And after she grew up, uh, well, while she was, I guess, if I remember correctly, uh, her mother and father, I don't know that they were married, I think it was maybe a, a birth out of wedlock, but whatever the case was, uh, her mother kind of gave her away to, for adoption before her father realized that. And he really regretted that when he found that out. So he started sending her, I don't know how he found out through the adoption agency, somehow he found out how he could communicate with her. So he started sending her a birthday card every year for her birthday. But the adoption agency kept this in a special location and told her that it was there. But she, you know, at first, for a long time, her thought was, well, why would I even want to know who my natural birth parents are? I have a family. I've been adopted and loved. But finally, a little later on in life, she went back and she looked at this and she realized that her father, who was still living, um, was sending her a birthday card every year. And so she actually met him and they got to spend some time together with him before uh, he died. And... Um, it turns out that he was a tailor by trade. He loved to sew. And guess what? So does she. She loves to sew. She's a great seamstress. Common traits united by the blood or the DNA in, in, in your family. Maybe you don't even know them, but it still means that you're similar. And so the blood of Christ brings people together. And we have common traits through the Holy Spirit. We are part of a family. I want to think a little bit about the concept of Christian community and why it's a blessing. You know, in this little church, I've, I've seen some of these things exemplified and I've really been blessed by them. And I'll mention them as, as we do that, as we come through them. But the first thing I'd like to mention is that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. 
think that through just a bit. What does that mean? The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. We hear that sometimes. Well, okay, so if I have John over here, and he can do a job in one hour, and I have George over here, and he can do the same job in one hour, logic would tell us that if we put them together, they can do the job in half an hour, right? But that's not always true. Sometimes, because there are certain tasks that take longer, if one person is turned over, if there's a heavy burden to move, it takes one person longer to move that. But when you put two people together, it's moved very easily. So maybe when you put the two of them together, it only takes them 20 minutes to get the job done. So the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And that is true in community in general, and especially in Christian community. We are more than a group of individuals with a common interest. We are part of a family. And the concept of community by itself means giving up some of our individuality to become part of a greater whole. If I insist on being an individual and it's going to be this way or else, it's my way or the highway, I'm not going to fit into a community very well. I have to be able to give and take. That's part of being in a community. And in 1 Corinthians 12, that concept of community is illustrated through the analogy of a body and its individual members. It talks about the ear and the nose and the feet and all those things. And, you know, Paul uses a little bit of humor, like, you know, if, if uh, the eye says, I'm the only one, then where's the hearing? How can you hear with an eye? You know, and, and, he, and he talks about us as members of the same body. The Bible uses various pictures to, to try to picture the church. And it uses the idea of a nation. We saw that in First Peter. It uses the idea of a body. Um, it uses the idea of a family. Various ways that it tries to show us the community of God's people. There's a need to see the consciousness or I'm saying there, there's a consciousness, I should say, to see the need of the brotherhood in a, in a church, in a church that's functioning well. There's an ability to see need. There are physical needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs. And we need to be sensitive to those because you know what we all do? We, we all do this. We hide our needs. We cover them up. You know, we say, well, I don't want everybody to see my dirty laundry. So, I'm, you know, I'm going to go to church, and when somebody asks me how I'm doing, I'm going to say, fine, fine, I'm doing just fine. And then maybe turn around and shed a few tears, because I'm not doing fine. But we have a tendency to cover up our own need. It may be, you know, it's tough to cover up physical needs sometimes, although sometimes we try. Sometimes we try to make our place look a little bit better when company comes. There's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, we try to put our best foot forward. We often try to hide our emotional needs. We don't want to be in tears all the time in public, so we put on a, you know, pucker face and kind of suck it up and get together and try to hide where we really are. And spiritual needs. Often when we are spiritually needy, the very fact that we're spiritually needy makes us prone to hide that as much as we can. We try to say that... We are just fine when we are not. 
And in church, we, we try to be formal. I heard a humorous story yesterday that I'll share with you that kind of illustrates this, I think. Uh, there were, there, apparently there were these Amish preachers. You know how the Amish preachers go upstairs and they'll, or they'll go in another room and they'll, have, they'll, they'll meet together while the rest of the church is singing and then they'll come down and then they'll conduct the service. Well, these Amish men were upstairs. There were four of them. And as they were coming down the stairs to join the rest of the congregation, the man in front had a cough drop in his mouth, and apparently he, he did something, and the cough drop popped right out of his mouth. And, of course, you know, it would have been a breach of protocol to stop and pick up the cough drop, so they all kept on going. But the last one stepped on the cough drop, and he slipped. And his feet went down, and he just took out the other three in front of him. And they all went down the stairway like a big sled and they hit the door at the bottom. The door burst open and in come all four Amish preachers. Kawam. Entering in a way that they were not expecting to. And so they were trying to conduct the service and the man who was preaching was up there preaching and he was, you know, trying to keep a sober face and, you know, Amish, Amish services are pretty sober. And all of a sudden, he just burst out laughing. He couldn't contain it anymore. And so did the whole rest of the congregation. They just laughed and laughed and laughed for a while because it was so funny when they thought about what had happened, but nobody was supposed to laugh. And that's understandable. We don't want church to be a place where we do nothing but laugh. But at the same time, because of the fact that we try to maintain a level of formality, we also tend to hide from each other our true need. And so we have to be sensitive to the needs of others. And sometimes I'm not very sensitive. And my wife has to, she's being female, part of the species, she's a little more sensitive. And she says, hey, what about this over here? And there's a need over there. But as Christians, we need to ask God to make us sensitive to one another's needs. Christ's workings through the body a common witness to the testimony of individuals. When we share a common testimony of our love for Christ, that's a testimony to the world around us. The witness of agape love for one another. What is agape love? It's a sacrificial love. It's a kind of love that gives and gives and gives. And sometimes I'm guilty of saying, you know, enough already. You know, I've given enough to that cause. And, and there are limits. Sometimes we have to help people help themselves. Sometimes that's the best way we can help them. But there needs to be, everything that we do should be inspired by agape love. And then they witness through agape love for the world. That one's a tough one sometimes. But that witness of agape love for the world draws men to Christ. I'll talk a little bit about the diversity of the members, but the unity of the body. We are all different. Every one of us here is different. And that's a blessing. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like if every man in the world looked the same, grew to be the same height, looked exactly the same, and every woman looked the same? I mean, that would be a confusing, difficult world. There's enough confusion when there are identical twins. But we're different, every one. God makes us and break and throws away the mold, so to speak. There's a unique combination of DNA in each of our bodies, and we are different. And yet, to, as the Church of Christ, there's a unity that comes through Jesus Christ. Oh, it's interesting. In today's political climate in the United States, 
the left uses a lot of identity politics. You know what identity politics are? You heard that term? Identity politics is the idea that groups behave in the same way. So white males think one way, black males think another, black females think another, white females think another. And so the idea is supposed to be that if you are in this group, then you're supposed to think in this way. And that is a tactic that literally comes out of Marxism. Marxism has always driven this idea that culture is divided into classes. And they have played on that. <clears throat> if you remember the, in the Soviet Union, they would talk about the proletariat in the bourgeois way. And the proletariat were the working people. The bourgeois were the people who owned the means of production. And so in capitalism, a country like ours where you can own a business and hire people, um, that capitalism was considered bad there. So they would talk about the fact that these classes are in conflict with each other. And what they would do when they wanted to take over a nation was get those classes in conflict with each other. And the left still does that. Marxism still does that. It tries to get groups of people to fuss with each other and fight with each other. Because if I want to control a group of people, if I want to control the people in here, one of the best ways to do it is to get them at each other, right? And then I can pull the little strings and you know, use them as puppets to work to meet my agenda because they're, in, they're against each other. God does just the opposite. He brings groups together. When you think of, it doesn't matter whether it's rich versus poor, it's black versus white, it's male versus female, you have all these, these categories in a culture that God brings together through Christ. Now, you know, we are going to think differently as people based on our background, based on lots of things. But disagreement doesn't need to cause division. Disagreement can actually strengthen us if we recognize that we're going to be different. Now, there, you know, there, obviously that has its limits. If I come to church and I start promoting the idea that homosexuality is just fine and gay marriage is fine, you're all going to have a problem with that, right? You promise? Amen. Amen. You better, because that's wrong. The scriptures are clear on that. But there are other things, the way we apply scripture may be different. And that's okay, as long as we can work together on that, depending on the issues. But problems occur when the members of the body adopt a spirit of competition. There was a poem written a number of years ago, back in the 60s, by a man named James Patrick Kinney. And uh, it, he died, I think, in 1974. But there was a... There, listen to the words of the, of the poem, if you will, and you'll, you'll get the picture that he was painting here. And I think this applies well in the church. It says, Six humans trapped by happenstance in black and bitter cold. Each possessed a stick of wood, or so the story's told. Their dying fire in need of logs, the first woman held hers back. For on the faces around the fire, she noticed one was black. The next man looking across the way saw not one of his church and couldn't bring himself to give the fire his stick of birch. The third one sat in tattered clothes. He gave his coat a hitch. Why should his log be put to use to warm the idle rich? 
The rich man just sat back and thought of the wealth he had in store and how to keep what he had earned from the lazy, shiftless poor. The black man's face bespoke revenge as the fire passed from his sight, for all he saw in his stick of wood was a chance to spite the white. And the last man of this forlorn group did not accept for gain, giving only to those who gave was how he played the game. The logs held tight in death's stilled hands was proof of human sin. They didn't die from the cold without, they died from the cold within. And so it is in the church when we allow these things to um, set us at each other. And I, I would just really encourage us as a congregation, when you have fought with your brother, if something comes up and you have a problem, uh, remember the prescription that Jesus gave. Talk about that problem. Do it in love, but go to that person and talk about it and work it out because that's important. Common goals. The members of the church community are moving in the same direction. We want to do what God wants us to do. And there are times when we have to make decisions together, right? I mean, we can, there are, there are times, there, there, I might do one thing in my house that's different from the way you do things in your house, and that's fine. But when we get together to worship, we can't worship, we can't start worship at 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock and 10.30 all at the same time. Uh, not if we want to be unified and working together. So there are some things that we have to do together. And that means giving and taking. It means talking through things and working through things. Christians meet together in a common place. I mean, we're here this morning. We could all just have worshiped at home, right? We could worship God at home. There's, you know, God don't have to be in a church house or in this shelter house or somewhere to worship. But, Paul, but we're told in the book of Hebrews to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. And, and if you go on and read that scripture, we won't go into that today, but if you go on and read that scripture, there are reasons that he gives for us to come together. One of those is to encourage each other to righteousness. Another is to draw ourselves together. There's, you know, it, it's, I think there's something unifying about hearing about each other's lives. You know, talking about your work day. What are the things that frustrate you? And what are the things that frustrate me? And what, what, what happened to me last week? And you know, what problems am I facing? And when we know these things about each other, there's, there's a unifying effect about that as we pray for each other. Getting into each other's homes, I, and I want to compliment the lesser in, in promoting that. And we, we do that, in our case we do that, we're small enough that we can meet in homes and so we do that every Wednesday evening. And that's a blessing because we go to one another's homes and we, just, you know, we see things there and, and we, we are able to visit in that context. And that's a good thing. And as we worship, you know, having an enthusiasm and an interest, one of the things I appreciate about here is that people try to prepare for their part in the service. And I appreciate that. I, I've been in settings where that hasn't so much been the case. Or somebody would, you know, have a Sunday school class and you could tell they hadn't spent five minutes in preparation. And so it was just like this, we got together and, well, it's the wing it, you know, because nobody was ready for it. I think preparing for the service and spending time in prayer is important. Reaching common ground for the teaching of the Word. Talking about the Word of God in our services. Not just 
talking about ideas, but talking about ideas in the context of scripture. And so reaching common ground by talking things through. First Peter chapter three, verses 14 and 15, Peter's talking to a suffering church, a church that was suffering persecution. And he says, but and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. In the Greek, that word answer is apologia. It means Christian apologetics. Heard that term? It means being able to defend your faith. Ever met a Christian who can't defend his faith? That's sad, but I've seen that. Or people will say, why do you do this? I don't know. We just do that. You know, that's not what the world is looking for, and it's not God, what God is expecting us to give them. He wants us to, when the English term apologetics, which comes from the Greek, uh, apologia means to uh, have a well-defined uh, answer, a well-defined set of reasons for doing what you do. In Acts chapter 17, verses 10 and 11, um, talks about those uh, in Berea who were uh, proving what they were told. They, they would go home, they'd hear something, they heard what Paul and, and, and uh, Paul said in, in his missionary journey, and they'd go home and they'd, they'd search the scriptures to see if these things were so. And he complimented them in that. Submitting one to another in the fear of God. Sometimes Somebody just has to give in, right? And that's hard. It's really hard sometimes. It's hard to know sometimes when you should and when you shouldn't. There are times when you shouldn't give in. There are times when you should stand your ground because it's the right thing to do. But then other times, you should be able to say, well, I don't see it that way, but I'm willing to do that if that's what everyone else wants to do. Uh, Ephesians talks about that. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Forbearing with one another. I'll put up with you if you can put up with me. It's kind of how it is in the church sometimes. I bet there are things, I bet if you were really honest, there are things about me that just, you know, deep down inside, they kind of take you off. Just, it's just how he is. Um, and that's, you know, we have that. Sometimes we say, you've ever heard somebody say, he just grinds me. There are people sometimes who do. But somebody once told me that when somebody is grinding you, God is using that to shape you into his image. And that's often true. Sometimes our worst critics and those that make us feel the worst are the ones that are actually helping us the most. So forbearing with one another. Ephesians 4, Paul talks about that. Paul, who is a prisoner of the Lord, is beseeching the Ephesians to walk worthy of the vocation in which they're called. And he just talks about endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The interdependence of the Church of Christ. We are one in adversity. What are we going to do if our culture keeps going the way it's going and we start suffering real persecution? What about when one of us gets sacked at work because we don't believe the right things? Is that a possibility? Yeah, I think it's becoming a more and more real possibility as time goes on. What are we going to do? Are we going to be there for each other? I trust we are. 
not just in the bad times or the good times, but in the bad times. In Hebrews 13, let brotherly love continue. Verse 1, be not forgetful to entertain strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being also yourselves also in the body. Being right there with them and sharing. Um, maybe it'd be good sometimes if we, those of us who, those who suffer adversity, and we all do at different times, how are we doing? Are we helping? Are we there for those in adversity? <clears throat> One in hope. We are called in one hope of your calling. It's from Ephesians 4. One in rejoicing. This one's kind of hard sometimes. Find out your brother got a promotion at work and now he makes more money than you do. Can you say, hallelujah, brother? Can't say, hmm, how can I get a promotion too? I don't really feel good about this. You know, it's that competitive spirit within us that can be good to a degree but that can easily turn into spiteful behavior because we are not able to rejoice with our brother. So, I understand that in places like Massachusetts, I think, where they do crab fishing and other places where they do crab fishing, they have something called a crab bucket. Maybe the children will find this interesting. My understanding, a crab bucket, I think, is often a wooden bucket. I don't know, it's not real tall. And they have this bucket, a big bucket, but they, they have this bucket, and they'll throw crabs in there as they catch them. And the thing is, the crabs can crawl right up the side of the bucket. So why don't they get out? Anybody know why? How they keep the crabs in a crab bucket? Well, my understanding is that crabs... When all these crabs are now at the bottom of the bucket, and one of them starts crawling up the side, the others will pull him back down. I'm not sure why, what their motivation is, but they'll pull him right back down. And so none of the crabs can get out because they pull each other down. And sometimes that happens in the church. Uh, someone was once talking about that with a particular ethnic group, and he was saying, here in America, and he was saying that they have crab bucket syndrome. He said every time one of them tries to succeed, the others pull him down. And we can easily do that to each other. You know, we can say, well, I don't like it that he's up here and I'm down here, so I'm going to pull him down to where I am. You know, put him back in his place. And so we yank him back down. But what God wants us to do instead is push each other up, help each other up. And then we all rise. The crabs help each other. They'd all be out of the bucket in no time. But because they pull each other down, they're all kept down. So let's be careful that we practice as a body of believers those things that promote unity and help each other. I just want to close with this. Do you believe that the church has a bright future? <clears throat> I think so too. You know, if, we, if we're talking about in five years from now, maybe not so bright in the Western world, maybe not in 10 years from now, but you look out into the future, way out in the future, absolutely the church has a bright future. And I'm going to close with a scripture that you all could probably memorize. Miranda, um, you might remember this one from school. I don't know. I think we memorized this passage together when I was teaching a long time ago at Fellowship Haven. But uh, in First or First Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18, I just want you to think about this moment 
in time which is coming for His church. It says beginning in verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or shall not precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself <clears throat> shall descend from heaven <clears throat> excuse me, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Can you imagine that moment in time? And that's really going to happen. And I'm trying to imagine what that's like. I think all of us here have loved ones that we've lost. Maybe some of you more recently than others. And that hurts. And that hurt stays for a long time. But to know that those who died in Christ are going to be resurrected. If I understand correctly, and I'm, I'm using my understanding, you may not agree with this, but if I understand correctly, the Lord is going to return. He's going to bring with Him those saints who are now with Him in glory, in paradise, awaiting their, their transformation to full redemption. He's going to bring the new Jerusalem with Him and He's going to bring those saints with Him and they're going to come, the, the, the spirits of those saints are going to rejoin their bodies and their bodies are going to be glorified. Now why is it so important that those bodies be raised? Why not just give them new bodies? Well, I think it's because we're individuals and we're going to maintain the fact that we're individuals. I think when I see Robert in heaven, I'm going to know him. I, that's what I personally believe. And I think that those those bodies are going to rise and then those who are still alive are going to be caught up together and we're going to rise together and we're going to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That should encourage us because that promise applies only to the church of Jesus Christ. Nobody else gets that promise. And so I really encourage you, I want to encourage you, you have a bright future. Just keep being faithful. It's tough right now. And it's probably going to get tougher. But that's all right. Because beyond that, it's a bright future. Let's pray.